Friends, if you have a Bible, would you please grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Before Chuck reads God's Word for us, I want you to know that the reason why I wear a robe is not because I think it's trendy or cool or the right way even. It's a way for us to see a picture of the gospel because broken sinners, such as you and I, are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. That is our only merit. And this robe, black, represents the brokenness of sin with which every one of us struggle. It's from my head to my toes in the same way that the righteousness of Christ covers us. So it may throw some of you off to see somebody wearing a black robe in worship in 2016. Please don't let it. Let it draw you to see the beauty of your Savior who loves you. Now please give your attention, if you would, to Chuck as he reads Matthew chapter 7 for us. We're Laura and Chuck Simmons, and we've been here since the beginning of the church. But I look around and I see so many faces that I see every Sunday, but I don't know your name. So it's, it's exciting. Some like John Herbert and the fan wise we've known for over, well, gosh, I don't want to say. Um, even my roof for Jeremy's back there. Good morning, Grover. Jeremy. Um, Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish should others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you now take your word, your holy, inerrant, inspired, beautiful word, and would you use it to change our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the golden rule. The golden rule is the most well-known rule for right living in history. Thousands of books have been written, theological tomes have been discussed, social and cultural works of ethics have been written on how to live out the golden rule. So I want to draw your attention to this one verse in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 12 of chapter 7, and I want to ask three questions this morning. First, what is the context of the golden rule within all of the Sermon on the Mount? Second, why can't we keep it? And third, how therefore should we obey it? Three simple questions. What's its relationship to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Why haven't we kept it? And how therefore do we obey it? Let's take these in order. First, what is its relationship to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Here at the beginning of verse 12, you see a very small word in English. It's the word so, or in some of your translations, it may be therefore. Therefore is there because it's connecting this golden rule to the larger section on the Sermon on the Mount on judging, which we've looked at over the last several weeks. We know that God is our judge. We know that all of our judgment, all of our discernment, all of our wisdom is to be done in relationship to God as our judge. Therefore, we should not judge others with a log in our own eye to condemn the speck in our brother's eye. We, it is by the nature of humanity to make judgment calls, but yet we are to do so humbly under God who is the true judge and the one who knows the human heart. 
So this golden rule is not detached from the rest of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the context of Jesus teaching us about the judgment of God. But wouldn't it be easier, wouldn't it be easier if God, Jesus tied verse 12 up to verse 6? If you have Bibles, look down at Matthew chapter 7. If this is about judging others, and he gives us this great rule, don't do to someone else what you would not want done unto yourself. Or, in the positive, do unto them as you would like done unto yourself. It would be easier, wouldn't it, if it was right after verse 6. Listen, don't throw your pearls to swine. Do not give to dogs what is holy, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Talking about judging, and then immediately Jesus could have said, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. But Jesus doesn't go from talking about judgment directly into this law. He gives us verses 7 to 11, which you saw last week, and it's about prayer. It's about coming to our Heavenly Father. Why would he give us that section? Like, this is a very real question when you read it. Why the golden rule looks out of place? Why would it be attached to the back end of verse 6? Why would Jesus take a side, uh, uh, a side route and talk about the nature of prayer? It's because that Jesus actually wants to raise the force of his argument because he wants you to recognize that you can never begin to do the golden rule. You can never begin to obey it. Indeed, we have not ever really obeyed it until you first recognize the amazing grace of having God as your heavenly father. I want us to talk about that together. The golden rule is in the context of God teaching us about judging, but there's a problem. The problem is that you and I cannot keep it. What gives? Like in AD 230, there was a Roman emperor whose name is Alexander Severus, and he, he took this great rule called the just the rule back then, and he wrote it in the negative on his wall. Do not do unto others as you do not want them to do unto you. And you know what color he used to write that rule? Gold. And he put it in the middle of his wall, thus the name Golden Rule was born. And he put it on public buildings. He used to quote it to criminals as he inflicted punishment on them. Do not do unto others as you do not want done unto you. It became a calling card. Listen, from the author of the Dead Sea Scrolls, to Aristides, to Rabbi Akiba, to Alexander Severus, to Confucius, to Immanuel Kant. Western or Eastern authors, Christian and non-Christian authors, all have claimed the golden rule and have assumed that it was known across time and space. So that leads us to a very, very good question. Why can't we keep it? Doesn't it seem so simple? In fact, you know why people are admitting that they're leaving the church today? One of the reasons that they give, that they've given me, and they've probably given you, neighbors and others, is that they look at the church and they ask the church this question. What do you want? Like, Like, what are you trying to get? And we describe this wonderful life of we just want to raise our family. We just want to have a nice house. We just want to retire with enough money to not run out before we pass away. And, oh, we also want to love Jesus. And they look around and they say, well, that's the same thing I want, except without the Jesus part. Like, there's no difference between your life and mine. 
Like, and people look at Christians and they're just not impressed because they're just as morally corrupt as the rest of the world. That's true, isn't it? Don't you see that in people? It's a real obstacle for us in Tulsa. There have been many churches planted in this town throughout the years, and there have been many, many controversies that have erupted out of Christian churches. But I just want, I just want to push back on you who are objecting on the cases of the morality of Christian, uh, Christianity, because you're, you're understanding the gospel with a mistaken assumption about the nature of Christianity. Christian theology has taught what is called the doctrine of common grace. In James chapter 1, Jesus' half-brother James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means that no matter who performs it, every act of kindness and righteousness and justice and goodness and wisdom and beauty is empowered by God. That God gives good gifts irrespective of people's creeds. He does. He gives many people talents. And some people are endowed with more common grace than Christians are endowed with saving grace. In other words, there are some non-Christians who are as nice as I'll get out. And there are some Christians, I tell you what, that are a mess. I'm exhibit A. But the gospel also teaches not just in the doctrine of common grace, it teaches the doctrine of saving grace. And that means that our, our moral efforts are feeble and weak and unable to merit the righteousness of God. No matter how good you are, no matter how many stars you got in Sunday school or how many times you've been to church, no matter how much money you give, nothing can merit God's love. It is given to you as a gift. And so the whole notion that people use when they say, well, Christians are just a mess and they're just like the world. Well, of course. Because you don't have to clean yourself up to get God to love you. He calls you to himself. You do not clean yourself up in order to come into God's presence. God brings you into his presence. And he sings over you his love. And so some of you who look at Christians and go, my gosh, they are no different than the world. Isn't it amazing that God would love wretches like us? And how over time he is conforming us by the power of his spirit to look more and more like him. The reason why people are morally good, oftentimes is because they grew up in a very stable family. They did not suffer abuse. Please hear me. They lived in a very stable social structure. Those things are not things that you control. You were born into the families in which you were born into. You didn't choose your, your parents. You didn't choose your upbringing or your environment. And there are many Christians who have been through such incredible abuse and such difficult, upended family environments that they are racked with deep insecurity. They have a real sense of a loss of self-confidence. And they are a mess. As one writer has said, the church is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum of saints. And friends, if you're here and you're frustrated because of the behavior of Christians, 
See the beauty of your Savior who makes you righteous. Do not let the, the obstacle of seeing other people's behavior and their failure to keep the golden rule keep you from seeing the one who is beautiful, namely Jesus Christ himself. Because the reason why you and I can't keep our, the, the golden rule, no matter how in general we may have kept it through the years, is because beneath our upbringing, beneath our struggles, beneath our obstacles is something the Bible calls sin. And sin is the opposite of faith. Sin is going out on one's own. Sin is believing the lie, as we've already heard prayed during the pastoral prayer, that God is not good. Sin is delighting yourself for your identity, your meaning, and your purpose in life in anything other than God who made you and created you for himself. And friends, the reason why we can't keep the golden rule and why we haven't after this grand experiment of thousands of years of humanity is because our self-righteousness runs deep to the bone. And the problem with why we can't keep the golden rule is not because we don't have enough self-effort. It's much deeper than that. It is the nature of sin in the human heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn one time gave a commencement address at Harvard in 1979, and he said, if only we could take all the, good, all the bad people and remove them to some desert island, and if only we could separate out the good from the bad, then we might have a just and civil society. But he said, as a Russian who had gone through the communist horrors of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, he said the problem is that the line of good and evil cuts right through the human heart. And our self-righteousness runs so deep. So we have a real problem on our hands because Jesus says, so do unto others as you would like done unto yourself. This is the sum of the prophets in the law. This is the summary statement of how we are to live in light of being the people of God. But we can't do it because of our sin. And yet Jesus comes to Christians and he says, oh Christians, listen to me. Even though the problem is sin, I still want you to do it. You know why? Because I give you good gifts. Up in verses 7 to 11, it talks about how the father loves to give good gifts to his children. Just like a dad would give a good gift to his son. Just like a mother, a good gift to her child. So also our father in heaven, he loves to give you good gifts. He is good. And despite your circumstances, he wants to bless you. And Jesus says, I want to bless you in three ways. The gospel gives you primarily three gifts in order to help us learn to obey and indeed to live out what God calls us to live in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Three gifts. How there are we to obey it? With the gifts that he gives us. What are those gifts? There are three. First, God gives us, friends, the gift of faith. My first car was a CJ7 Jeep, maroon, beautiful. And I got it when I turned 16. And you know what I paid for it? Zero. It was a gift for my mom and dad.
I did nothing to earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was a gift. Do you know why it was given to me? It wasn't given to me as much as I would love to wash it, to wipe it down with a baby diaper. It was not given to me to sit on my parents' driveway. In fact, they got mad at me for parking it in the wrong places. It was meant to get me to school and to practice and to work and around my hometown. In the same way, your faith is not to be a trophy. Your faith, God gives us faith as a means, a means of transportation to something. And some of you have great faith. You drive the nicest faith around, leather seats decked out. You have incredible amounts of faith just by nature. You trust God. And some of you, listen, you have the equivalent of like a 1979 Pinto worth of faith. But it is not the amount of your faith that matters. It is the purpose of the faith, which is to be a means by which you have a right relationship with God. It drives you somewhere. And some of you are like, it, this is sweet. And others of you are like, oh my gosh, my wheels are going to fall off. There's a story in the book of Mark about a man who had a son. And this son had an unclean spirit. And this man brought his boy to the disciples. He wrapped him in his arms. He carried him to the disciples and said, would you please heal my child? And the disciples couldn't heal him. And so he brings his son to Jesus one day. And it was bad. He foamed at the mouth. He threw himself into fires. I mean, it was bad. And Jesus said, what can I do for you? And he says, Jesus, would you heal my son? If you can. And Jesus says, if I can? Oh, nothing is impossible for those who have faith. And the man looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I have a 1979 Pinto worth of faith. I believe it help my unbelief. Friends, Jesus gives you faith. It is a gift. Somewhere along your lives, and maybe even before the end of this morning, the Lord opens up the gospel, and he makes it appear true for you. You begin to believe it. And the obstacles, whether it's the moral decadence of other Christians that you know, or whatever it may be, falls flat. And for the first time in your life, you're able to say, I believe it. And Jesus shines beautiful for you. If that's you, then today is the day of salvation. It is a gift that he gives you. You didn't deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. He gives it to you. But that's not the only gift that he gives you. He gives you faith, yes, but secondly, he gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit. There's an old story about three Greek boys, Eurystates, Aristides, and Epimenides. And they stood before the gods one day, and the gods asked them, we want to give you whatever you wish. And the first one, Eurystates, said, I would like to have the athletic prowess that has never been seen before in humanity. And so they made him incredibly buff and strong and athletic and big. And he's this amazing athlete. The next one, they said, what would you like, Aristides? And he said, I would like all the money and power and wealth in the world. I'd like to be economically great. So he gave them all the power in the world, all the wealth. And the third one, Epimenides, they said, what would you like? And Epimenides said, oh, I like how this game works. I'll take you inside me, please. Like, I want God, like, I want you. Like, I want you to, like, indwell me. And they said, oh, no, that's impossible. But what Jesus says in this passage is he says, listen, nothing is impossible with faith. 
And Jesus gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is that God indwells you. You can have all the brawn. You can have all the wealth in the world. What could be greater than knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the Father who stands sovereign over all creation has drawn near to you, not only drawn near to you, but he has given you his very life. And he has placed his Holy Spirit in believers to strengthen them to fight against the indwelling power of sin and to begin to obey the law of God, just like he gives us in Matthew 7, 12, to obey the golden rule. Friends, Jesus gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the presence of his Holy Spirit. Peter says at Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God takes all the good we cannot do. He places it on Jesus and he gives us the rights to become sons and daughters of God. And he gives us a seal of his Holy Spirit in our hearts to give us the courage to obey commands like loving others when it's just hard to obey it. Jesus gives you faith to obey. He gives you the Holy Spirit to convict and to empower and to remind you who you are. That's not, only the, thing, that's not the only thing he gives you. Thirdly, he gives you the gift of his promise that he will complete in you what he began. God speaks of our completion in Christ in the past tense as though he had already accomplished it. We live in time, and God stands outside of time. So when Jesus Christ said, Tetelestai on the cross, it is finished. It was as though it was finished in the throne room of God. Scripture says, that those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What a promise. That he has glorified you, and that one day you will stand complete. You will be able to perfectly obey the golden rule. You will have no problem doing so because there'll be no more sin in you or in the world, in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will stand together, and this will be our calling card. We will love others the way we would love to be loved. And we will operate together in perfect unity with each other and in the glory of God. Listen, don't lose me. That's why we're at worship. Like, we are in process of being called out as God's people by faith to put our trust in Him, to have a right relationship with Him. And then we are being molded, some of us quickly, some of us ever so slowly, if you're like me, more and more into God's image so that one day we stand pure and holy and fully glorified in His presence. Nothing could be more amazing than that. Kyle Houselman has a taste of that right now in the presence of King Jesus. And one of these days when you bury me and, or when I bury you, we are helping prepare each other for the day when we will be fully glorified. And we as a church now begin to become a snapshot of that great day. And though we are a mess and we welcome other messes, join the club, we are slowly but surely becoming more and more serious about doing the things that Jesus calls us to do and being the people that Jesus calls us to be in light of the good gifts that he's given us, faith, the Holy Spirit, and the promise that he will complete what he began in us. When all the good we cannot do, 
will one day become the good we always do to others as we want to be done to ourselves. Oh, in that great day, we will finally and fully see Jesus in all of his magnificence and beauty and joy. And you have a chance now, now, to be able to see that ever so slightly through repentance and faith. C.S. Lewis, in his first book in the Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew, says, You see, friends, that before the new clean world I gave you was even seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, and waked and brought hither by this son of Adam. Speaking of Diggory, Aslan is the one explaining this. Evil will come upon that evil, Aslan says, but it is still a long way off. And I will see to it that the worst of that evil falls on myself. In the meantime, let us take such order that for many hundred years, yet this shall be a merry land and a merry world. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. Though we cannot keep the golden rule, Jesus kept it for us. And he says to us, follow me. Pick up your 1979 pinto worth of faith and trust me. Love others when it's hard. I've given you my Holy Spirit, he says in John 14 and in John 16. You have the promise that one day you will be complete. What frustrates you and each other, you will learn one day, oh, it'll be amazing. You will love each other for all the glory and goodness that we have as those made in the image of God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation to take on the wrath of God for us, for our sins. Guys, the Christian life is demanding, but in essence, it is very simple. It is knowing the grace of God in your own life. And it is allowing the grace of God to work so powerfully in your hearts that you are freed from the mastery of sin over self and over your life. And you can now go and you can serve others. And you can be a blessing to them as the Lord has brought blessing to you. This is the kind of clear-sightedness that Jesus is trying to bring into view for the disciples to recognize that he wants them to be who they are. And how do you do that? You love others as you yourself would like to be loved. So let us treat others as we ourselves want to be treated. Not because by doing that God is more pleased with us or more proud of us or we, we merit his favor in some way. No, we do not. But because we are called to be his kids, his children, his beloved and this is the mark of those who call themselves Christians. Though we'll try this in fits and starts and need to confess every week, this is our call, O church. O for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, and the triumphs of His grace. Jesus, would you help us to see that our greatest problem is sin, not moral effort. And would you help us to see that though our problem runs deep as bone, your life and your death was enough for us 
So would you empower us and would you strengthen us to live out our holy callings as your people, to treat others as we would love to be treated because you were mistreated for us.